I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Radio Westeros, episode 47. We should start back. Spoilers all books! Hello and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm Lady Guinevere and in this episode, in the spirit of the many rereads currently taking place across the fandom, I'll be diving into an analysis of the prologue from A Game of Thrones. I'll begin with a general look at the role prologues play in introducing epic fantasy before diving into a reread-style recap of the chapter, highlighting the elements that make this prologue function as a standalone short horror story. Then I'll move on to an analysis of some key points from the chapter, including a close look at the others, the big bad briefly introduced to us in this chapter, but just as quickly hidden off page again in the realm of legend. We'll also consider whether the Night's Watch really does have business with the dead, and take a close look at Sir Waymar Royce and his backstory, as well as what we know about his fellow Night's Watchmen, Will and Garrod. Finally, we'll wrap it up with a look at the themes of death and fear, which, as we see it, are pretty central to the narrative and are central to this chapter from the outset. Do the dead frighten you? After the events of this prologue, we think they should. Before I begin, we want to give thanks, as always, to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Maltude, Pepper, Whitney, Kelly, Rory, Laura, Daniel, John Wagerian, and Sister Winter. Many thanks to you all, and if you're interested in becoming a patron, head on over to patreon.com slash radioesteros to check out our campaign, where our patrons have access to two exclusive episodes and early ad-free access to all of our regular episodes, among other perks. Your support helps us keep Radio Westeros going and doing what we love to do. And now, it's time to get started with the Will Prologue our very first introduction to A Song of Ice and Fire. I actually began the book back in the summer of 1991. I was between Hollywood projects, so I decided to make a start on a new novel. See how far I got. The novel I began was an SF book called Avalon, set in the same future history as Dying of the Light and many of my short stories. 
I actually wrote three chapters, but then one day the opening chapter of A Game of Thrones came to me so vividly I had to write it. Not the prologue, mind you, but the first chapter proper, where Bran sees the man beheaded and finds the direwolves in the snow. Next thing I knew, Avalon had been put in a drawer and the fantasy had seized me completely. I knew I was lost when I started drawing maps. George R.R. R. Martin As we heard in that quote from 1996, the year A Game of Thrones was released, George began writing the series in 1991. Yet some of his key ideas were forming in his subconscious even before that. Somewhere around 1981, George visited Hadrian's Wall with fellow writer and friend Lisa Tuttle. He recalls wondering what it would be like to be a Roman soldier at his post, waiting for the enemy to attack. This was to become the inspiration for the wall-guarding Night's Watch, whom we first meet in the A Game of Thrones prologue. As George said in the quote, the first chapter he actually wrote was Bran 1, which comes immediately after the prologue. This means he had to work backwards to fit the prologue around the first chapters. Nobody knows exactly what transformations shaped his writing into its final form, but the public release of an original outline highlighted that the story was once very different in substance, if not structure. All we can be sure of is that Bran 1 and its summer snows came first, and that George developed the story over a five-year period afterwards. During this time, he began to believe he had a trilogy of epic fantasy on his hands, and an opening prologue is a staple of the genre. And there's a lot of responsibility resting on an epic fantasy prologue. Other series that feature particularly good ones include The Wheel of Time, Mistborn, The Kingkiller Chronicles, and the First Law Trilogy, to name a few. After a thorough line-by-line walkthrough today, we'll be considering what makes a great prologue, and if our entree into A Song of Ice and Fire hits the marks. Prologues in epic fantasy are there to make promises to the reader, and so we'll consider what promises this one makes, and also what hooks George uses to snare us as readers and keep us from putting the book down. We'll also address why we're shown the others so early on, and how this chapter fares as a standalone short story. All of these questions and more will be dealt with in this episode. We'll also be considering the characters of Will, Garrett, and Waymar, the mission of the Night's Watch, and what we can glean about the other's character. Are the largest clues about the icy enemy and their origin right here in the prologue? Stay tuned to hear what we have to say about that. But before we view the prologue from an angle of evaluation, we'll first put the microscope on the text itself with a thorough walkthrough of the very first chapter of A Song of Ice and Fire to meet our eyes. Many of us will be remembering fondly our first time picking up A Game of Thrones and becoming immersed in the series. So let's see what role the prologue had in that process and why. It's time for us to start back. We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. The wild things are dead. Do the dead frighten you? Sir Waymar Royce asked with just the hint of a smile. Garrett did not rise to the bait. He was an old man, past fifty, and he had seen the lordlings come and go. Dead is dead, he said. We have no business with the dead. Are they dead? Royce asked softly. What proof have we? Will saw them, Garrett said. 
If he says they're dead, that's proof enough for me. Will had known they would drag him into the quarrel sooner or later. He wished it had been later rather than sooner. My mother told me that dead men sing no songs, he put in. My wet nurse said the same thing, Will, Royce replied. Never believe anything you hear at a woman's tit. There are things to be learned, even from the dead. His voice echoed, too loud in the twilight forest. We should start back, Garrett urged as the woods began to grow dark around them. Is the sentence George used to begin his epic fantasy series that still dominates his life nearly 30 years later. It's essential for the author to draw us into his world as quickly and completely as possible. Immediately, he chose to convey that Garrett is anxious at the darkening of the woods around him. We can all picture the scene. Woodland is a familiar setting in both fantasy and horror, and we all know that the night drawing in means danger. For rereaders, of course, the night holds an even greater meaning in this story. And so George uses a sense of familiarity to draw us in. Good fantasy writing is often a mix of the familiar and unfamiliar. Too much familiarity is boring, yet too much of the unfamiliar is overwhelming. As we see the chapter unfold, we can see George introducing his unfamiliar foe against this simple framework of a dark night in the woods. Soon, Garrod mentions that the wildlings are dead. For him, there's no reason to remain in these scary woods. Having Waymar smile as he taunts Garrod by saying, Do the dead frighten you? establishes tension between the two. Fans of horror will guess that it's Waymar who's going to encounter whatever danger is being telegraphed by the first lines of the chapter. He's that cocky soul who won't listen to caution. Garrod, on the other hand, doesn't rise to the bait. He's sensible and revealed to be an experienced man, past 50, who's seen lordlings come and go. Garrett is a survivor, and presumably Sir Waymar is not. Already, questions of ageism and class are entering the dynamics between these two characters. And the theme of death is brought to the fore as Garrett and Waymar argue about whether the wildlings really are dead, the word is used six times in as many lines, and lines such as dead is dead and do the dead frighten you provide both undead foreshadowing and perhaps elicit a snicker from the rereaders. Soon the chapter point of view, Will, is brought into the proceedings as the sole witness to the wildling's apparent death. He's reluctant to join the quarrel, exhibiting some passivity as he chimes in with his mother's line about dead men singing no songs. When Waymar replies that there are things to be learnt from the dead, it's noted that his voice is echoing and too loud. Remember, it's Will making these observations, and that they highlight a certain naivete in Sir Waymar. And when Garrett adds that they have a long journey ahead of them, it's providing the pinch or tension to the situation. He's stressing urgency, and Waymar remains nonchalant. The pinch between them is where the conflict of the narrative is coming from, and soon Sir Waymar is taunting the experienced man once again. Are you unmanned by the dark, Garrett? he asks. 
Will thinks of Garrett's 40 years in the Night's Watch, though we have yet to learn what that might mean in context. The reader can guess that he's a hardened and experienced man. Yet disgruntlement isn't the only thing Will can sense from the man. There's also fear in the air, an unease shared by the point of view, and perhaps by the readers too. Will thinks of his own four years on the wall and the terrifying stories of what lay beyond it. This is where the characters are now, and Will thinks that the haunted forest no longer held any terrors for him. Until tonight. Those two words are a huge hook drawing the reader in. George is letting us know that something is different tonight, preparing us for waiting terrors. With the primitive fear of darkness already closing in, the reader now has to face the unknown. As we can be sure, something is about to befall these men. All day, Will had felt as though something were watching him, something cold and implacable that loved him not. Garrett had felt it too. Will wanted nothing so much as to ride hell-bent for the safety of the wall. So the reason they're not able to ride off to safety is simple. Their commander is Sir Waymar Royce. After thinking of Garrod's experience and backstory, Will contemplates Waymar's. He's an 18-year-old knight and has a fine mount and wonderful clothing, a superfluous heir to an ancient house. He's been given this command after just six months in the organization. A portrait of a privileged but inexperienced young man is being painted. He's designed to be disliked. Every one of us has known a cocky young upstart like Sir Waymar, who's never truly earned anything for himself. And in this story, he's preventing the good guys, Garrett and Will, from getting what they want, which, reasonably enough, is safety. At this stage, Waymar is the antagonist. It's not surprising to hear that Garrod, when in his cups, had mocked Waymar. Will reflects that it's difficult to take orders from a man that you had such little respect for. Perhaps the audience is also being invited to laugh at the pompous green boy with the sable cloak, and by now we certainly understand the conflict between Garrod and Waymar that is driving the story. The pair are foils. Marmont said as we should track them, and we did, Garrett said. They're dead. They shan't trouble us no more. There's hard riding before us. I don't like this weather. If it snows, we could be a fortnight getting back, and snow's the best we can hope for. Ever seen an ice storm, my lord? The lordling seemed not to hear him. He studied the deepening twilight in that half-bored, half-distracted way he had. Will had ridden with the knight long enough to understand that it was best not to interrupt him when he looked like that. Tell me again what you saw, Will. All the details. Leave nothing out. As much as we begin to dislike Waymar for imperiling the group, perhaps we must also recognize that from his perspective... He's trying to do a thorough job in accounting for these wildlings, and so he has a keen sense of pride, honor, and duty. So we learn of Will's backstory with the Night's Watch, which is very different from Waymar's. Will was a hunter turned poacher who chose the black over losing a hand. 
This tells us that the Night's Watch is a rather complex organization, a brotherhood to which Will's entry was a punishment, whereas Waymar's seems more connected with the honor of his house. And whereas highborn Sir Waymar might have learned or been trained in certain knightly skills, Will's aptitude is hunting and tracking. The talent has already served him very well as a Night's Watch ranger and serves the story in that he is a great watcher and observer, and so he's an appropriate point-of-view character. It's no coincidence that it's through this watcher's eyes that we'll witness the climactic scene of the chapter later on. Asked to leave nothing out of his story about the dead wildlings, Will replies that there were eight bodies in a snow-covered camp two miles away. No living man ever lay so still, he claims. However, Waymar's refusal to accept his word continues to provide the pressure and tension in the story, and the knight quizzes him further. Royce wonders why Will saw no blood and begins to suggest the fallen wildlings could have been sleeping. At this point, we're with Will and Garrod, wondering what Waymar is getting at as the knight asks the grizzled man-at-arms what he thought might have killed the wildlings. It was the cold, Garrett said with iron certainty. I saw men freeze last winter, and the one before, when I was half a boy. Everyone talks about snows forty foot deep and how the ice wind comes howling out of the north. But the real enemy is the cold. It steals up on you quieter than will, and at first you shiver and your teeth chatter and you stamp your feet and dream of mulled wine and nice hot fires. It burns, it does. Nothing burns like the cold, but only for a while. Then it gets inside you and starts to fill you up. And after a while, you don't have the strength to fight it. It's easier just to sit down or go to sleep. They say you don't feel any pain toward the end. First, you go weak and drowsy and everything starts to fade. And then it's like sinking into a sea of warm milk, peaceful-like. When the most experienced man in the group says with iron certainty that the cold killed those wildlings, we are invited to side with him. It's quite a monologue Garrett gives about the cold of the North, and he's clearly drawing from personal and honest experience. When Waymar mockingly highlights his eloquence, Garrett reveals the two stumps where his ears had been. Some of his black brothers had been even less fortunate. Again, Waymar dismissively pokes fun at Garrett, saying he should dress more warmly, making the man and the reader seethe. Yet, suddenly, George inverts our expectations. As the Green Lordling outsmarts the pair and is proven to be correct, on a point of logic, for the time being at least, he asks Will about the state of the wall recently. The fact that it was weeping meant the temperature was too warm for the wildlings to have frozen to death. At this stage, it seems like a very astute deduction by Sir Waymar. After introducing generic conventions of horror and fantasy, now we have the elements of a murder mystery on our hands, with Waymar being the sleuth who now intends to see the scene for himself. Will leads the journey back to the camp. He and Garrett both bound by honor and duty to obey their 18-year-old superior. The scout leads with a shaggy little garron slowly traveling through the undergrowth. Next comes Sir Waymar on his large warhorse, a great black destrier that snorts impatiently. It's clearly the wrong type of horse for this terrain and mission, but Will thinks that the lordling simply won't be told. 
Bringing up the rear is Garrod, who mutters to himself as he rides, still clearly incensed by Waymar's rudeness and course of action. At this stage, the reader might wonder what's preventing a mutiny here, and could conclude that these two are truly decent men who must respect their organization, given that they don't have any real regard for their leader here. As the three men travel, the sky turns the color of a bruise before darkness draws in. When we hear a wolf's howl as Waymar tries in vain to hasten the group, there couldn't be a more ominous way to set a tone. When the group dismount to walk the rest of the way, they're further exposed and vulnerable. There's something wrong here, Garrett muttered. The young knight gave him a disdainful smile. Is there? Can't you feel it? Garrett asked. Listen to the darkness. Will could feel it. Four years in the night's watch and he had never been so afraid. What was it? Wind, trees rustling, a wolf. Which sound is it that unmans you so, Garrett? When Garrett did not answer, Roy slid gracefully from his saddle. He tied the destrier securely to a low-hanging limb, well away from the other horses, and drew his longsword from its sheath. Jewels glittered in its hilt, and the moonlight ran down the shining steel. It was a splendid weapon, castle-forged and new-made from the look of it. Will doubted it had ever been swung in anger. "'The trees press close here,' Will warned. "'That sword'll tangle you up, my lord. Better a knife.' If I need instruction, I will ask for it, the young lord said. Garrett, stay here. Guard the horses. Garrett dismounted. We need a fire. I'll see to it. How big a fool are you, old man? If there are enemies in this wood, a fire is the last thing we want. There's some enemies. Fire will keep away, Garrett said. Bears and direwolves and... And other things. So we witness Garrett becoming very frightened at this point, claiming that there's something wrong here, and that they should listen to the darkness. The latter instruction informs us that Garrett's instincts are alerting him to an unusual danger, a fact which is underscored by Will being able to feel it and that he'd never been so afraid. If these two, a seasoned ranger and a talented hunter, are feeling a genuine fear of the dark woodland, then we, as readers, should be too. Their fear is now ours. However, in keeping with proceedings thus far, Waymar makes mock of their fear. We might wonder if he's brave or simply naive at this stage, although the answer could ultimately be both. As he nonchalantly dismounts and ties his horse, he reveals his splendid jeweled sword. We can guess it's an expensive piece that neither Garrod nor Will could ever likely afford, and perhaps Waymar feels a degree of invincibility and superiority with it in his hands. But when Will suggests the blade is too large to be suited to their surroundings and that a simple dagger might be more effective, Royce's wisdom is again brought into question. Predictably, he dismisses the advice, believing wholeheartedly that he knows best. 
leader also rejects Garrod's idea of starting a fire, calling the man a fool. The veteran replies that a fire will keep away bears, direwolves, and other things. The ellipses George uses before the other things brings emphasis and mystery to that point, and the reader's left to wonder what those things might be and why they might have an aversion to flame, piquing our curiosity and keeping us turning pages. For a second time, Waymar overrules Garrett's request for fire, and now the tension between the two characters is palpable. Will perceives a hard glitter in the older man's stare. He wonders if there'll be a deadly confrontation between the pair, and now there's a description of Garrett's sword, a short, ugly thing, its grip discolored by sweat, its edge nicked from hard use. This blade stands in stark contrast to Waymar's beautiful castle-forged sword, which has seen very little use. It's another example of the different classes of these two men, and Will has no doubt that, should it come to blows, Garrod would prevail. In this dark forest, experience trumps sophistication and riches every time. Yet, with the whiff of mutiny in the air, Garrett drops his hard stare and acquiesces to Waymar's order not to light a fire. So far, much of the tension has come from the contrast between him and Waymar, but Garrett backing down here, along with the fact that he's clearly more concerned with an unspoken enemy than with either Royce or the Wildlings, suggests to the reader that this tension so far has been a decoy of sorts and that we're yet to meet the real threat in this chapter. Will leads on through the thicket toward his vantage point under a sentinel tree. Sentinel pines are a real-life species, a medium-sized variant of the scotch pine, native to the United Kingdom, but the description of these trees in story and what we later learn is their widespread range is typical George R.R. Martin world-building. He takes something from the real world, tweaks it, makes it bigger, or otherwise subtly changes it. Another example of the author using elements in his world building that are at once familiar and unfamiliar, a masterful technique that keeps his readers both comfortable and curious. As Will moves toward the tree, his stealthiness is remarked upon. Again, we see a contrast with Waymar, whose ringmail makes unwanted noise while the lordling tugs and curses his way through the undergrowth, unable to harmonize with his surroundings in this crucial moment largely due to his unsuitable equipment. Then, as Will gazes down upon the moonlit clearing below, he feels shock. Although everything was just as it had been a few hours ago, the wildling bodies had mysteriously vanished. But whereas Will is severely spooked by these proceedings, urging Waymar to get down and that something's wrong, Royce is predictably unshaken. He looked down at the empty clearing and laughed. <laughs> Your dead men seem to have moved camp, Will, quipped Sir Waymar. So Will, having been the only eyewitness to the dead bodies, is in shock, unable to speak or comprehend the impossible scene before him. He fixates on the huge double-handed axe that remained lying precisely where he had last seen it. The fact that this axe had not been stolen, a valuable weapon left for the taking, hints to the reader that something is dreadfully amiss with the scene. Whoever or whatever moved those bodies didn't care about stealing this useful item. 
The motives of this unseen enemy, therefore, are increasingly curious and adds to Will's sense of confusion. And while Will examines the scene, making important and astute observations which lead him to sense danger, Waymar can only look on with disapproval. I am not going back to Castle Black, a failure on my first ranging. We will find these men. So we see what this situation means to him. He's a proud young man who's eager to impress and prove his leadership at its very first testing. It's now that he tries to take control of the situation by ordering Will up that sentinel tree to survey the greater area. Will is too scared, shocked, and generally flummoxed to disagree. He's so frightened at this point that, quote, fear filled his gut like a meal he could not digest. He whispered some prayers to the old gods and kept his iron dirk between his lips, which is said to bring him comfort. Down below, the lordling called out suddenly, Who goes there? Will heard uncertainty in the challenge. He stopped climbing. He listened. He watched. The woods gave answer. The rustle of leaves. The icy rush of the stream. A distant hoot of snow owl. The others made no sound. Will saw movement from the corner of his eye, pale shapes gliding through the wood. He turned his head, glimpsed a white shadow in the darkness. Then it was gone. Branches stirred gently in the wind, scratching at one another with wooden fingers. Will opened his mouth to call down a warning, and the words seemed to freeze in his throat. Perhaps he was wrong. Perhaps it had only been a bird, a reflection on the snow, some trick of the moonlight. What had he seen, after all? Sir Waymar ordering Will up the tree serves two narrative purposes. It gives the reader a great point of view for what's about to come next, and it keeps Will safe for the time being while leaving Waymar vulnerable. The uncertainty Will perceives in Waymar's challenge of who goes there might be the first outward indication of fear from the lordling. As Will witnesses only the surrounding woodland and nature give an answer, the others are mentioned to make no sound. As we head towards the finale of the chapter, the reader has many reason to be curious. Who are these others? Why is the O capitalized? How can they be so unnaturally stealthy? Will sees movement in his peripheral vision, a white disappearing shadow. He's too terrified to warn Waymar and is perhaps afraid of being further mocked by Royce. But Will needn't have doubted himself. This was not his fear, imagination, or a trick of the moonlight at play. The tension of the chapter is reaching a crescendo, and the overriding emotion within the characters and the readers is fear and anxiety. It's interesting at this point to consider the generic features we've encountered in this prologue thus far. The setting of a dark, moonlit forest, the emphasis on themes of fear, danger, and death, and the building sense that the characters are being watched by some kind of mysterious otherly beings— is all straight out of the horror writer's toolbox. A Song of Ice and Fire might be an epic fantasy series, but to hook and lure in the reader, to set the stage, and to make important narrative promises, George R. R. Martin has chosen a short horror tale as his opening gambit. So let's head on to the climax of this horror piece. Waymar suddenly calls to Will, asking if he'd seen anything. His body language is now different, turning in a small circle as if suddenly wary, 
Will still can't answer, but he thinks Royce must have sensed what he had, a presence and an unnatural cold. As he clutches his high perch, shivering, a being emerges. It says, A shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. It stood in front of Royce. Tall it was, and gaunt, and hard as old bones, with flesh pale as milk. Its armor seemed to change color as it moved. Here it was white as new-fallen snow, there black as shadow, everywhere dappled with the deep gray-green of the trees. The patterns ran like moonlight on water with every step it took. With the whiteness of the flesh, the aged gauntness, and the iridescent armor, the reader begins to understand that these others are not men, but supernatural entities. What was going through Waymar's mind at this point is impossible to know exactly, but with his voice cracking like a boy's as he orders his adversary to come no further, the implication is clear. The cocky, arrogant upstart was suddenly very afraid. Fortunately, though, Sir Waymar's aforementioned bravery is not lost to the dread of the moment, and he frees his arms to grasp his sword in both hands. Of all the pitfalls of Waymar's character, ultimately, cowardice is not one. The tall other slides silently towards him, and the hidden will observes the being's sword, and we get a detailed description. Recall earlier we got description of Garrett's old cheap blade, which signified a lot about his humble character, as well as Waymar's blade, luxurious, fancy, well-fashioned, which again spoke to his character and background. So when the other's blade is described as alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal impossibly thin, ghost light and sharper than any razor, we should be asking what this weapon tells us about the foe. The answer is clear. The blade is beyond human, superior to human workmanship in every way, and so George is conveying that the others transcend and are outside and perhaps above the natural order of man. Just the sight of the magical sword must have made all of this obvious to Waymar, but to his credit, it says, he met him bravely. Sir Waymar met him bravely. Dance with me, then. He lifted his sword high over his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps from the cold. Yet, in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. The other halted. Will saw its eyes, blue, deeper and bluer than any human eyes, a blue that burned like ice. They fixed on the longsword, trembling on high, watched the moonlight running cold along the metal. For a heartbeat, he dared to hope. Sir Waymar and Royce's invitation to this otherly being with an ice sword and inhuman blue eyes to dance with him is certainly a highlight of the chapter. One could argue that this line came from his aforementioned naivete, but we prefer to see it as an extraordinary act of bravery fueled by fear. The chapter has so far been steeped richly in fear, and Waymar's defiance here demonstrates human spirit and hope, offering some countermeasure to all of that fear. It also immediately serves to transform Waymar from an annoyance with antagonistic qualities into a hero, even in the eyes of Will, which has the knock-on effect of establishing these mysterious others as the real enemy. 
But still, the reader senses Waymar's becoming, from a boy to a man of the Night's Watch, won't last long. More others emerge from the shadows, twins to the first, it says, meaning they all look alike. Whereas Waymar is winning his internal struggle with fear, Will is losing his, still too afraid to do his duty and alert Royce to the presence of the new crowd. Maintaining his scared silence, Will can only clutch the tree and watch on as, quote, the pale sword came shivering through the air. And now the fight begins. When the swords meet, the ringing is an unnatural high sound, like an animal screeching in pain. The first blows send Waymar stepping backwards once and then again, as the group of others watch on, seemingly with no intention to interfere. We'll talk about why that might be later in the episode. After further ear-splitting blows, Waymar, surrounded by impossible cold and wielding his relatively heavy castle steel sword, begins to tire. His sword being covered in frost while the other's blade danced in the moonlight serves as a metaphor for how affected Waymar is by the conflict as opposed to his foe. And then, as a result of this fatigue, Waymar's parry came a beat too late. The icy blade cut straight through his ringmail as he cried out in pain. Attention is drawn to his moleskin gloves, which came away from his wound covered in blood. The other's reaction was to speak in an unknown language, sounding like the cracking of ice on a winter lake. The words, according to Will, were mocking. It seems the other had found some amusement in his superiority over the night's watchman. But Waymar wasn't finished yet and cried for Robert as he aimed a brave slash at his foe. This is the first mention of Robert, who turns out to be King Robert Baratheon, and underlines that Waymar was fighting admirably for duty and honor and country as much as for his own survival at that moment. He lifted the frost-covered longsword with both hands and swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. A scream echoed through the forest night, and the longsword shivered into a hundred brittle pieces, the shards scattering like a rain of needles. Royce went to his knees, shrieking, and covered his eyes. Blood welled between his fingers. The watchers moved forward together, as if some signal had been given. Swords rose and fell, all in a deathly silence. It was cold butchery. The pale blade sliced through ringmail as if it were silk. Will closed his eyes. Far beneath him, he heard their voices and laughter sharp as icicles. In spite of Waymar's courageous efforts here, the fact that George describes the other's parry as lazy underlines what kind of enemy men will be facing in this epic story. They are supernatural, magical, and incredibly skilled fighters. It will take more than just bare courage to defeat them, and even a well-smithed sword will not stand against them. When his blade shatters, Waymar is wounded, defenseless, and beaten. Only then do the larger group descend on the lordling and finish him off, his armor providing no resistance. 
Will's only response is to close his eyes as if he were a child hiding under the bed covers from some monster. And when he eventually finds the strength to reopen his eyes, the others are gone. With the cold reminding him that he'll not survive in his hiding place forever, the ranger finally climbs down to face reality. He finds Waymar's boyish body and his unnaturally broken sword and has enough sense to recognize that it would be useful as evidence. Nobody's going to believe what he's just witnessed. He thinks that Garrod will know what to make of it or else the Night's Watchman Mormont or Aemon. He wonders if Garrod is still waiting with the horses and thinks he must move with haste if he's to find him. And here, at the very end of the chapter, is the final twist. Sir Waymar is suddenly upright and standing over him. He has been brutally hacked to death with those magical swords and even has a splinter from his own sword embedded in his left eye. But his right eye was open, burning the same inhuman blue of the others, and there's an implication of recognition. Does this undead Waymar recall that his lookout had failed to alert him to the danger that led to his own death? Will drops the sword without a fight, and the previously referenced fine moleskin gloves of Waymar Royce are wrapped around Will's throat with a deathly and icy grip. As he kills Will, the reader can once again wonder about Waymar's opening line. Do the dead frighten you? In this story, the dead will dance, and the reader should have every reason to be frightened. This prologue was true horror. Will rose. Sir Waymar Roy stood over him. His fine clothes were a tatter, his face a ruin. A shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye. The right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek and then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. 
The first question of this chapter is spoken by Waymar Royce. Do the dead frighten you? By the end of the chapter, we felt a creeping dread, seeing the horror of Waymar's death, and in the last lines are introduced to the terror of the walking dead. It's no accident that Waymar, the one who asked the question, is the one that physically shows the reader that the dead can and will be very frightening. In addition to this theme of death and fear, which we'll discuss again later, the Will Prologue introduces various important elements that will be later built upon in the greater story. Quite centrally, we get to meet the others, and the chapter places the supernatural antagonists as a primary and fearsome threat to the human characters. The reader senses this won't be the last we see of these foes, and that one day they will need to be confronted and fought. But through the five books, we see them seldom, and information on them is rather scarce and delivered quite piecemeal. They become a shadowy presence in the long-term layout of the story, with the focus quickly switching to human war and politics. Given their growing importance to the future of the narrative, one of the key questions we should ask is what can be gleaned about this mysterious race from a close analysis of this chapter, as well as from their brief mentions in subsequent chapters and from what George has publicly stated about them. In the prologue, the others are first mentioned after Waymar challenges, who goes there? We've thus far heard about the wildlings, those foes whom the ranging initially concerned, yet the reader can sense a greater threat. After the woodland dancers with the rustling of leaves and the icy rush of a stream and the distant hoot of a snow owl, it says the others made no sound. In his peripheral vision, Will perceives gliding pale shapes and a white shadow amidst the darkness of the forest. George is conveying that these others are at home in this natural setting. Gliding silently gives us the impression that they're both stealthy and graceful creatures, and moreover, that they're stalking their victims. Now the Night's Watchmen are turning from the pursuit of wildlings to being pursued themselves. The hunters have become the hunted, a classic theme designed to make one's hair stand on end, and which, all other things considered, furthers this mini-story as a horror piece. When Will perceives a reflection on the snow, some trick of the moonlight, Though he's not sure what he had seen, we realize that these others might have some supernatural camouflage that grants them a further advantage, which is juxtaposed with Waymar Royce's unsubtle clumsiness. Next comes the unnatural cold which seems to surround the others, felt by both Will and Waymar, as the latter asks in desperation, Why is it so cold? Finally, with suspense at its critical mass, it's time to introduce an other and, quote, a shadow emerged from the dark of the wood. The creature is described as being tall, gaunt, hard as bones with armor that changes color as it moves. As we mentioned earlier, in its hand was a seemingly magical blade, non-metallic, translucent, sharper than any razor, an impossibly thin shard of crystal that shimmered a strange blue. So, even before the confrontation with Waymar, several facets of these others are being conveyed. A race not bound by the restrictions of the common or even privileged man, there's an immediate air of magic about them. Adding together their aforementioned ability to easily move silently through the dark and rugged terrain of the forest, their visual iridescence and camouflage, and their possession of an unearthly weapon— 
we can suggest that George wants the reader to recognize their superiority as well as their difference. This is very important in a fantasy foe, as it gives us the instinctive, gut-wrenching feeling that the others will be a fearsome enemy and more than a match for the human characters. In the longer story, we gather that it will take something special from the human spirit to vanquish them, and that if nothing is done to stop the others, then they are a legitimate and plausible threat to humanity itself. And before we continue our analysis of the others here in the prologue, let's look at what George has said about these mysterious beings to further our descriptive content. When producing the A Game of Thrones graphic novels, Daniel Abraham said he had many conversations with George about the others and what they should look like. Here is what George said in one email. The others are not dead. They are strange, beautiful, think, oh, the she made of ice, something like that. A different sort of life, inhuman, elegant, dangerous. And so George's description of them being in possession of a strange beauty dismisses any notions that the others are your typical fantasy, ugly, simplistic, and horrible adversary. Similar to casting the good guys of the Night's Watch in black and the bad guys in white here, their beauty speaks to an inversion of this expectation. Orcs, they are not. The inhuman, elegant, and dangerous qualities he mentions are evident in the prologue, but the mention of a she made of ice might have been unexpected. She, spelled S-I-D-H-E, is the Irish word for a supernatural race from Irish mythology comparable to fairies or elves. They can be found in Scottish mythology as well, where it's usually spelled S-I-T-H, but it's pronounced the same. They're said to live underground in fairy mounds, across the western sea, or in an invisible world that coexists with the world of humans. You may have even heard of the Banshee, a female spirit who presages death with her eerie wailing. When this quote was unearthed in 2012, it sent a Song of Ice and Fire theorist off furiously researching the she in the hopes of gleaning a further understanding of the others. However, it would be wise to remember that George was not necessarily comparing the others to the she as creatures with habits and motives. He was conveying to artists how they should appear in the graphic novel. As such, any like-for-like comparison with the she should be taken well-salted, lest we all fall down a mythological rabbit hole. George also told Daniel Abraham that their reflective camouflaging armor is able to pick up the images of things around it like a clear, still pond. More significantly, he also answered the artist's questions as to what their swords were made of. He said, Ice! but not like regular old ice. The others can do things with ice that we can't imagine and make substances of it. So whereas the prologue merely refers to their blades as thin shards of crystal, we have confirmation that the crystal is in fact a magical ice substance. Recalling Will's observation that they're so thin that they almost can't be seen from a certain angle, and George's repeated assertion that these beings are masters of ice, the others seem well-equipped to create carnage. 
With the ultimate inclusion of fire-breathing dragons in later chapters of A Game of Thrones, the others seem like they are a good fit for the ice in this Song of Ice and Fire. And back to the prologue, it seems obvious, in hindsight at least, that Sir Waymar Royce would never win this duel. As he squares up with the other, more of his icy companions come into view. It says, they emerge silently from the shadows, twins to the first, three of them, four, five. Sir Waymar may have felt the cold that came with them, but he never saw them, never heard them. As the other attacks Waymar, pushing him back from the outset, it says this, behind him, to the right, to the left, all around him, the watchers stood patient, faceless, silent, the shifting patterns of their delicate armor making them all but invisible in the wood. Yet they made no move to interfere. This passage is both curious and telling. The others have the numbers to surround Waymar, yet they choose to silently watch on as their companion deals with the human. The fact that it's underlined that they don't want to interfere informs us that these mysterious, inhuman, alien creatures might actually have more in common with us than we think. Here they're displaying some form of chivalric code by allowing a fair duel. This might be our first clue about their true nature and origins, inhuman in various ways, yet decidedly human in others. Soon Waymar is injured, but he summons the willpower, the bravery, and determination to strike back. It says, Sir Waymar Royce found his fury. For Robert, he shouted, and he came up snarling, lifting the frost-covered longsword with both hands and swinging it around in a flat sidearm slash with all his weight behind it. The other's parry was almost lazy. When the blades touched, the steel shattered. So once again, George is highlighting the other's superiority here. For all the fury the human character could offer in the way of a counterattack, the other needed to assert minimal effort from its skill set to repel it. Waymar's fancy sword, shattering, further symbolizes the apparent futility of human effort. As the Night's Watchman falls to his knees, the apparent non-interference code that the others had been adhering to ends and the group move in to slaughter him without mercy. The others communicate in an incomprehensible icy dialect and seem to laugh mockingly, which again fits with the notion that this race is both human and inhuman. The others appear to have a sense of humor, macabre to be sure, but laughter is a distinctly human attribute, as is language and their manner of combat. As for their inhuman characteristics... We've seen preternatural stealth, magical armor and swords, and mastery over cold itself. There's one further addition to the other's formidable arsenal as well. Death itself. Whereas mankind are limited and rather defined by death, the ultimate end for all of us, the others have defied and weaponized it. When Will is choked to death by the undead Waymar, we realize that the others will be able to slay humans and raise the corpses as their enslaved foot soldiers, offending the human natural order and every sensibility we have. Death is part of what makes us human, and death is being subverted and perverted here. Now that's a formidable foe, one mysterious enough to speak to our curiosity and hook us in early, and fearsome enough to keep us invested throughout this epic story. 
The resurrection of Waymar also solves the intriguing mystery presented early in the chapter. What happened to those wildlings' bodies? Although we never witnessed them as undead, seeing Waymar rise strongly implies that the wildlings were also brought back in a similar fashion. Our prologue horror story now includes a horrifying zombie event. In the first chapter proper of A Game of Thrones, the focus shifts towards human relationships and politics, and as Winterfell prepares to receive a royal visit from the king, the same Robert that Waymar attempted to honor before his inevitable doom, these themes will consume the narrative. Nonetheless, there are still scattered references and appearances by the others and their whites throughout the five books, including various tie-ins to the information gleaned in the prologue. Old Nan, who's a reliable source of knowledge and lore, according to George, soon tells the tale of the ancient Long Night, a great backstory from some 8,000 years ago. The others first rose during this frightening period during the Age of Heroes. They were cold things, dead things that hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They swept over holdfasts and cities and kingdoms, felled heroes and armies by the score, riding their pale dead horses and leading hosts of the slain. All the swords of men could not stay their advance, and even maidens and suckling babes found no pity in them. They hunted the maids through frozen forests and fed their dead servants on the flesh of human children. Not only does this tale underscore the potential for absolute horror and human devastation that the others can bring, but also might nod back to the prologue. Old Dan's passage mentioned the others being afraid of iron and fire. In the prologue, when Will is sent up the tree, he's overcome by fear. It says, He whispered a prayer to the nameless gods of the wood and slipped his dirk free of its sheath. He put it between his teeth to keep both hands free for climbing. The taste of cold iron in his mouth gave him comfort. And that last sentence, despite being somewhat ambiguous, just might be Will gaining comfort from the iron with the belief, rightly or wrongly, that it could repel the nameless threat he's been sensing. There are more than a few hints that Garrett and Will have heard about the others, which is to be expected as members of the Night's Watch, since esoteric northern lore and legends are certainly known to be circulating in the North, as evidenced by these tales we hear from Old Nan. One such hint is when Garrett tries to light a fire. He says, there's some enemies a fire will keep away. Bears and direwolves and, and other things. Again, in spite of the ambiguity, this might be Garrett thinking of the others. And again, Old Man's Tale shows a northern belief that fire dismays them, that the seasoned night's watchman could well have had knowledge of. Ultimately, Old Man's story doesn't stop at warning the reader of the apocalyptic devastation the others will surely attempt to rain down on humanity later in the story, but rather like Pandora's box, it offers a branch of hope at the end. The others were defeated by mankind the first time around. A figure known as the last hero was instrumental, as were the Night's Watch. The narrative ultimately mentions weaponry other than fire and iron that might be anathema to the others. The mysterious dragon steel, the flaming lightbringer, numerous Valyrian steel weapons, and simple dragon glass or obsidian all potentially pose a threat 
to those some call the White Walkers. In fact, in A Storm of Swords, when unlikely hero Samwell Tarly stabs an other with dragonglass, we find out for certain its effect. It says, When he opened his eyes, the other's armor was running down its legs in rivulets as pale blue blood hissed and steamed around the black dragonglass dagger in its throat. It reached down with two bone-white hands to pull out the knife, but where its fingers touched the obsidian, they smoked. Sam rolled onto his side, eyes wide as the other shrank and puddled, dissolving away. In twenty heartbeats, its flesh was gone, swirling away in a fine white mist. Beneath were bones like milk glass, pale and shiny, and they were melting too. Finally, only the dragon glass dagger remained, wreathed in steam as if it were alive and sweating. Gren bent to scoop it up and flung it down again at once. Mother, that's cold. Obsidian, Sam struggled to his knees. Dragon glass, they call it. Dragon glass. Dragon glass. Add that to the knowledge that we gain of White's vulnerability to flame, evidenced by John's destruction of Othor, and we're gradually learning of this enemy's vulnerabilities, giving the reader hope that with the right spirit, the right band of heroes, collaborations, strategies, and weaponry, this foe can be defeated. Sam, charged with researching this new enemy in the archives of the Night's Watch, finds confirmation of these things. The armor of the others is proof against most ordinary blades, if the tales can be believed, and their own swords are so cold they shatter steel. Fire will dismay them, though, and they are vulnerable to obsidian. Nevertheless, George will find ways of maintaining the sense of real danger. One example of this is the portrayal of much of Westeros as being ignorant about the others. When Sir Alistair Thorne arrives in King's Landing to show off a handy piece of undead evidence, he's mocked by the acting hand, Tyrion Lannister. There's also continuous reflection on how the Night's Watch is in a state of disarray and unprepared for serious combat with this enemy, as we'll be discussing shortly. Another example of George maintaining the sense of danger is by portraying hopelessness in his characters. Regarding the other's weaponized cold, Tormund Giantsbane, an otherwise fearless character, says this to Jon Snow. You know nothing. You killed the dead man. Aye, I heard. Man's killed a hundred. A man can fight the dead, but when their masters come, when the white mists rise up, how do you fight a mist, crow? Shadows with teeth, air so cold it hurts to breathe like a knife inside your chest. You do not know. You cannot know. Can your sword cut cold? So the reader shouldn't rest too easy just yet, in spite of Sam the Slayer's exploits. Five books in, and there's still plenty of mystery to consider regarding the ultimate role of the others, how they will attack, and what the human characters will do to counter them. And speaking of mysteries, the origins of the others and their true nature is another major talking point between fans. So what can we take from the text on this issue? Well, in our analysis so far, we were keen to point out that the others seem both inhuman and human. 
The fact that they displayed some kind of combat code early on shouldn't be overlooked. They seem more like supernatural men than elves, she, or other fantasy species in their behavior, although it's clear that George is doing his usual trick of mashing wide and varied influences here, in this case from fantasy and British and Irish mythologies. We said in our Long Night episode many moons ago that it seemed highly suspicious to us that mankind fought the children of the forest and drove them far to the north, and from the far north emerged these others to devastate mankind. Coincidence? Well, there might be a giant clue to their nature right in the prologue. As the crowd of others emerged to watch Waymar's duel, Will describes them to be twins to the first. These beings are either clones or are all closely related, and we get a further clue when Sam converses with Craster's daughters. The old man Craster had been marrying his own daughters, but his sons were strangely absent. With her newborn son, Gilly pleads, Me and the babe, please, I'll be your wife, like I was Craster's. Please, Sir Crow, he's a boy, just like Nella said he'd be. If you don't take him, they will. They, said Sam. The boy's brothers, said the old woman on the left. Craster sons. The white cold's rising out there, Crow. I can feel it in my bones. These poor old bones don't lie. They'll be here soon, the sons. So, all evidence points to the others taking Craster's sons to join their ranks. The question of why they specifically went to Craster is another mystery entirely. Could it have been simple convenience? Or was there something particular about Craster's line that they needed? Some theorize that he has Stark blood that might facilitate some kind of blood magic, or perhaps he's a descendant of the Night's King who had possibly sired children with a hybrid other wildling woman. Perhaps Craster is an apparently willing partner in human sacrifice because of something as basic as cultural memory. When Rob leaves Winterfell, the wildling Asha tells Bran that his brother is marching the wrong way, one of our early hints that perhaps politics and the affairs of the Seven Kingdoms might be of less importance than they seem. The true enemy is north, she says, telling him, The cold winds are rising, and men go out from their fires and never come back, or if they do, they're not men no more, but only whites with blue eyes and cold black hands. Why do you think I run south with Stiv and Halley and the rest of them fools? Mance thinks he'll fight. The brave, sweet, stubborn man. Like the White Walkers were no more than rangers. But what does he know? He can call himself King Beyond the Wall all he likes, but he's still just another old black crow who flew down from the Shadow Tower. He's never tasted winter. I was born up there, child, like my mother and her mother before her and her mother before her, born of the free folk we remember. The implications of this statement that Asha knows about the others whom she calls white walkers and their powers to raise the dead and their association with extreme cold are that north of the wall, knowledge of this threat has not been lost. The free folk their oral history culture, remember. Mance Raider has learned their ways and perhaps believes the stories, but he doesn't know. 
Imagine finding that all the nightmares from childhood stories told around the fireside are coming true. Men rising with blue eyes and black hands, white walkers in the woods, and the threat of a winter such as has never been seen. This is the advantage the free folk have over the people of Westeros. They never stop believing in these stories. If Craster somehow believed he could forestall these things coming true by sacrificing his son to these cold gods, perhaps that's the best explanation for his behavior. Unfortunately for the free folk, the resurgence of the others, who may have been dormant or simply restricted to a smaller range for all these long years, pins them between a terrible supernatural foe and the men of the Night's Watch. As indicated early in the Will Prologue chapter, the wildlings are now seen as the enemy, and we soon learn that many in the Watch now see keeping these northern tribes in their place to be their primary mission. But it wasn't always so. And in the next segment, we'll discuss how the Watch has moved so far from their vows and forgotten why their order was formed in the first place. But first, here's a word from our Westerosi sponsor. At the Black Brothers Fashion Boutique, we specialize in the finest black menswear. Here you'll find your black woolen tunics, trousers, and undergarments, boots of the most supple black leather, boiled leather jerkins, and gloves of the finest black moleskin. Our signature garment is the sable cloak, thick, black, and soft as sin. It will keep you warm when the cold winds blow and mark you as a man clearly prepared for your vocation. Pair our fashions with your custom-made black ringmail and weaponry and you'll be ready to face any challenges the Night's Watch puts in your way. The Black Brothers Fashion Boutique, for when black really is your color. Dead is dead. We have no business with the dead. The Order of the Night's Watch was founded during the Long Night in the Age of Heroes. The lengthy struggle with the others ultimately led to the creation of an order that, alongside the fabled last hero of the First Men, fought and won the Battle for the Dawn, which broke the hold of Winter, the Long Night, and the others over the realms of men. According to legend, this great event occurred six to 8,000 years ago, and following their victory over the icy foe, Bran the Builder oversaw the raising of a great 700-foot-tall wall of ice to guard the northern borders from future incursions by the others and their undead servants. The men of the Night's Watch built 19 castles along the south side of the wall and were charged with keeping watch for enemies from the north, and their vows reflect that mission, stating, among other things, I am the sword in the darkness, I am the watcher on the walls, I am the fire that burns against the cold, the light that brings the dawn, the horn that wakes the sleepers, the shield that guards the realms of men. However, in the millennia since their founding, apparently the only threat from the North has come from the free folk, called wildlings by the Black Brothers, who have occasionally banded together to attempt to breach the wall. 
In that time, the Night's Watch has dwindled in size and abandoned the majority of the fortifications they had built along the wall, with only three castles fortified at the beginning of A Song of Ice and Fire. The Night's Watchmen appear to have largely forgotten their original mission and the meaning behind their vows, as the terror of the others has receded into the mists of legend and, by the present time, is accounted mostly as a myth or tall tale. In fact, many thousands of years after their founding, one Archmaester Fomas would write a history called Lies of the Ancients, in which he speculated that the others were simply a tribe of first men, ancestors of those people who would become known as the Free Folk, or Wildlings, who sought refuge in the South following the onset of the Long Night. Fomas would go on to suggest that the Night's Watch and the Starks painted these events as an invasion of supernatural monsters in order to show themselves in a more heroic light. Obviously, the events of the Will Prologue give the lie to Fomas's so-called lies, but he seems to have apprehended a point which many in Westeros would sooner forget, that the free folk themselves were first men, like their cousins to the south, who had the misfortune to be north of the Great Barrier raised by the Starks. Their persistent attempts to move south just might indicate that there is something that they want to get away from, some threat that the Night's Watch and those south of the Wall remain unaware of, despite the common belief that the others have been asleep or in stasis all these thousands of years. And as we've said, in this prologue, the wildlings are certainly depicted as an enemy. The Night's Watch are tracking them, though we don't know exactly why. However, by the climax, we get the impression that they may have been victims themselves, setting us up for the struggle Jon Snow has with learning that so-called wildlings are simply men and women, and that the true enemy is something else entirely, and then convincing others of this forgotten truth. And it's truly no wonder that things have come to this state. The histories tell of numerous kings beyond the wall who made the attempt to lead their people south of the wall. The first and most legendary of these was Joramun, who ultimately joined with the Stark King of Winter to defeat the Night's King, who we mentioned briefly in the last segment. The Night's King was the 13th Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, who fell in love with a woman, quote, with skin as white as the moon and eyes like blue stars. Surely the description of this woman is enough to give anyone who's read the Will prologue pause. The others are described as having flesh pale as milk and eyes of a blue that burned like ice. While the others don't appear to have females, there are many folktales about them laying with human women to sire half-human children. Our gut feeling has always been that this woman may have been one of those children. The so-called Night's King married the woman and declared himself King of the Night Fort, ruling there with her for 13 years and presiding over untold horrors until Joramun and Brandon Stark defeated him in battle. In spite of this moment of common cause, however, Joramun is counted by Mance Raider as one of the many kings beyond the wall who broke their power against the wall or were defeated by the Starks. Some three to 5,000 years later, the brothers Gendel and Gorn, as co-kings, led their army of free folk through a network of tunnels under the wall. Maester Herrick relates the origin of this invasion in his History of the Kings Beyond the Wall, how the brothers were called upon to mediate a dispute between a family of giants and a clan of the children of the forest. The dispute was over ownership of a certain cavern, 
But when the kings discovered the cavern in question was actually part of a network that extended far to the south, they used trickery to claim ownership of it for themselves. It was by this means that they were able to invade the kingdom of the Starks south of the Wall, though Gorn was ultimately killed by the son of the Stark king that he himself had killed, while Gendel was alternately destroyed by the Northmen or chased back into the caverns where he and his people became lost to history. A couple of millennia later, or about a thousand years in the past, going by the very rough reckoning of these tales, a leader known to history only as the Horned Lord allegedly used magic to pass the wall. Nothing else is known of him or his fate, although the phrase sorcery is a sword without a hilt is attributed to him. And the next king beyond the wall was Baal the Bard. We discussed the legend of Baal in our episode about Lyanna Stark. The legend, which was related to Jon Snow by Egret and seems well known among the free folk, but was unknown south of the wall, relates how Baal deceived the Lord of Winterfell and took his daughter as a lover, fathering a child who would grow up to be the Stark heir, and who, 30 years later as the Lord of Winterfell, would unknowingly kill his father in battle at the Frozen Ford. What's interesting about this legend is that it refers to Lord Stark and the King's Road, both historical references that would place his existence not only after the conquest, but during or after the reign of Jaehaerys I when the King's Road was built. The fact that Bale's son was apparently killed in turn by a member of House Bolton, who wore his skin as a cloak, might challenge this interpretation, since the Boltons allegedly gave up their gruesome practice of flaying their enemies a thousand years ago, but we know that the Boltons are flaying their enemies in the main series, and as a point of foreshadowing this, Reek tells Theon in A Clash of Kings that Roos used to say, a naked man has few secrets, but a flayed man's got none. And in fact, Theon recalls legends that relate how certain Boltons had, quote, gone so far as to cloak themselves in the skins of dead enemies. A number of Starks had ended thus. So this tidbit is actually of less use in locating Bale on a timeline than, say, the fact that there's a complicated abundance of historical Starks in the generations following Jaehaerys' reign, where it's possible to imagine this story fitting in, especially if one allows that Brandon, such a common name in the Stark family, might simply be a generic name that the Free Folk use to identify Stark lords. At any rate, following the death of Bale and his son, the next king beyond the wall to make the attempt was Raymond Redbeard. Now, Raymond is definitely from the historical era, as the Stark Lord who faced him in battle is identified as Lord Willem Stark, who is the great-great-grandfather of Jon Snow. Raymond took advantage of the declining Night's Watch to gain a foothold on the wall by having raiders scale to the top, much as the party led by Jarl and Steer did in A Storm of Swords. Raymond's men then proceeded to throw up ramparts and use ropes and ladders to allow thousands of their fellows to cross behind them. The location of their crossing isn't noted, though the obliviousness of the Night's Watch and their Lord Commander, Jack Musgood, known to history as Sleepy Jack, is. It fell to Willem Stark and his brother Artos to defeat the invading army at Long Lake, halfway to Winterfell from the crossing point, though Lord Willem was famously cut down by Raymond, who then fell to the avenging sword of Artos Stark. After Raymond's death in 226 AC, only three generations would pass before the next assault would come. 
Mance Raider would lead the greatest host ever assembled north of the Wall. Jon Snow would estimate it to be 30 to 40,000 people, though the majority may have been non-combatants. Stannis, who admittedly wouldn't view spearwives as soldiers, puts the number of combatants closer to 16,000. This assault, too, would be driven back, and the king taken captive, though not through the efforts of the Night's Watch alone, as it was Stannis Baratheon's timely arrival that turned the tide of the battle. What all of this would seem to indicate is manifold. For starters, the attempts to cross by the Free Folk appear to have increased over the last several centuries. By the current story, the Free Folk are highly motivated to get south of the Wall. Mance Raider tells Jon Snow, You know what we are facing. The others grow stronger as the days grow shorter and the nights colder. First they kill you, then they send your dead against you. The giants have not been able to stand against them, nor the Thens, the Ice River clans, the Hornfoots. In fact, Mance is quite blunt about his wish to lead his people to safety south of the Wall. At the same time, he correctly evaluates the strength of the Night's Watch as not enough to stop him or any other determined enemy from the north. In fact, the review of these assaults by the Free Folk tells us one thing quite clearly. While the legendary kings beyond the Wall seem to have relied on sorcery or subterfuge to make their attempts, which may have been more about conquest, as Mance indicated, more recent efforts have involved thousands of men brazenly climbing over the Wall at unmanned locations and making inroads into the north. And it's not just the assaults by armies, but small parties of raiders which have become commonplace. We already mentioned the wildling Asha, captured in the Wolfswood in A Game of Thrones as part of a group that included Night's Watch deserters that was fleeing south in part to escape the threat posed by what she called the White Walkers and their undead servants. Even in 58 AC, the visiting Queen Alisande was shown a captured party of wildlings who had climbed the wall, only to be captured, have their ears cut off, and sent back from whence they came. The only ones not released were the ones already missing their ears, Apparently, in the days of Lord Commander Burley, it was a two-strikes-and-you're-out rule for raiders. Those captured with missing ears would be executed, the Queen was told. Queen Alisande was impressed by the wall and seemed to understand the strains of garrisoning it. During her visit, it says she spent much time, quote, discussing the wildlings, the wall, and the needs of the watch. Ultimately, she was able to effect the closing of the Night Fort, once the seat of the Night's King and his ghastly bride, amongst other horrors, and endowed the construction of a new castle at Deep Lake. She also convinced Lord Alaric Stark to double the size of the gift, that tract of land that had been deeded to the Night's Watch for their support by a legendary King Brandon Stark. But the interest and support of Alisanne and Jaehaerys was too little too late, In spite of the continuing support of House Stark and other northern houses, and the fact that some of these families, most notably First Men, still found it to be an honor to send their younger sons into service with the Watch. By the current story, the Watch is more of a penal colony, a place for many to send problematic criminal types or casual lawbreakers or even simply extra mouths to feed. Essentially, the Night's Watch, by the end of the 3rd century A.C., has become a warehouse for Westeros' unwanted men. And so when Garrod declares dead is dead and we have no business with the dead, he reveals two things. One is a lingering fear of dead men from beyond the wall, while the second 
is an unfortunate ignorance of what the Night's Watch mission truly is. The Night's Watch certainly does have business with the dead and with their masters. In fact, the events of this prologue chapter prove that they would do well to review their vows and recollect exactly what they're supposed to be watching for from their vantage point atop the end of the world. Up next, we move into analysis of the major characters of this chapter, from Waymar Royce, the apparent antagonist, to Garrod, who will reappear inside the main narrative not long after, and finally to Will, whose point of view reveals these events to us and whose death underscores the power of the foe that has just been introduced. The knight's smile was cocksure. Will, lead us there. I would see these dead men for myself. In his final battle, as we heard, Waymar Royce proved himself to be a man worthy of the Night's Watch. His bravery in the face of death proved that his, quote, cocksure statement to Will, I would see these dead men for myself, was not just idle bluster. Say what you will about Waymar, we can see that he died bravely and well, a theme that we'll get back to later. But before he became a man of the Night's Watch, Waymar was a member of a proud and ancient house of first men descent. As the third son of Bronzion Royce, Waymar grew up in the Vale at the Royce stronghold of Runestone. His elder brother Andar was his father's heir, while Robar, the second brother, was attorney knight of some renown. House Royce dates back to the Age of Heroes, when they styled themselves the Bronze Kings and fought with their neighbors and rivals, the Shets of Gulltown, with whom they shared the peninsula north of the Bay of Crabs. Their house words, we remember, words that incidentally are echoed by the wildling Asha when explaining her people's understanding of the threat of the others, are a strong indication that the Royces place great importance on their heritage, and their pride in it is not without reason. So, as we said, the Royce kings of old were known as the Bronze Kings, and in a progression of technology moving from the stone tools and tablets of early First Men, it's easy to see how the working of shiny metal weapons, tools, and adornments from copper and tin ores that would likely have been found in the hilly areas of the Vale would set these men above their neighbors. The fabled armor worn by the men of House Royce, made of bronze and inscribed with runes, speaks not only to their once superior abilities in smithing, but also to their likely advancement in writing technologies, as the two things in real life are often found to go hand in hand. It was House Royce which bore the brunt of the Andal conquest of the Vale, which preceded their advance throughout the southern kingdoms of Westeros. The last bronze king, styling himself High King of the Vale, the Fingers, and the Mountains of the Moon, was Robar Royce, second of his name. King Robar came to power when he was but 16 years old and was reputed to be a charismatic military leader. But while his men at first prevailed against the Andal invaders, now allied with their ancient enemies, the Shets of Galtown, King Robar was ultimately defeated by the Andal Sir Artis Aaron in the Battle of the Seven Stars. The surviving Royces and their allies bent the knee to now King Artis, and the subjugation of the Vale to the men of Andalos was complete. The Andals had arrived in Westeros bearing steel weapons. In fact, the Andal house Corbray, who had seized control of the Fingers, appears to have been in possession of their Valyrian steel blade Lady Forlorn by this time, as it's mentioned in the histories of the Battle of the Seven Stars. 
as in real life and absent any strategic geographic advantage, such as those enjoyed by the Iron Islanders and the First Men of the North, bronze would always yield to steel. But as we also see frequently in real life, following their defeat by the invading Andals, House Royce went on to be strong supporters of House Aaron. Following the Targaryen conquest, House Royce were among the leading houses in the Vale, and its lords often served important roles in government. Lord Yorbert Royce was the Lord Protector during the minority of Lady Chain Aaron and represented her interests at the Great Council of 101. As an adult, Lady Jane Arryn would become a supporter of her cousin Rhaenyra Targaryen during the Dance of the Dragons, while in the same era, Daemon Targaryen would marry, albeit unhappily, a member of House Royce, Lady Rhea, whom he sardonically referred to as my bronze bitch. This reference to bronze, of course, refers to the hereditary armor of the house. The World Book tells us, even to this day, the lords of Runestone go into battle clad in the bronze armor of their forebears, etched with runes that are said to ward the armor's wearer from harm. Alas, the number of Royces who have died whilst wearing this runic armor is daunting. Furthermore, Maester Denistan, in his Questions, speculates that the armor is far less ancient than it appears. So House Royce has clearly cultivated this connection with their history, and if the actual armor worn by the lords in the present isn't the original from thousands of years ago, it's probably not all that surprising. In addition to their bronze armor, though, it appears that House Royce also joined their Andal brethren in obtaining and passing down a hereditary Valyrian steel sword. They weren't the only first men to do so, either, as we're introduced to the 400-year-old Valyrian steel sword Ice, owned by House Stark in the very first chapter of A Game of Thrones. But the Royce sword, called Lamentation, was lost during the Dance of the Dragons when Sir Willem Royce, loyal to the Blacks, went out with six companions during the storming of the Dragon Pit to recover Prince Joffrey Valerian, who was attempting to save the dragons. Sir Willem was one of many who, along with Prince Joffrey himself, were killed that day, and his sword was never seen again, joining the ranks of famous Valyrian steel swords that have gone missing. Perhaps having had enough of the follies of female leaders following Lady Jane Arryn's death and naming of her fourth cousin as her chosen heir, House Royce supported a rival candidate as Lord of the Eyrie, a closer cousin who had tried to seize power from the lady on several occasions during her lifetime. The matter was ultimately settled in favor of Lady Jane's choice, though House Royce doesn't seem to have suffered much for backing the wrong horse. A junior branch of the family arose at some point, into which married the sister of Edwile Stark, who was Ned's grandfather. From that marriage came those cousins in the Vale that Catelyn tells Rob about in A Storm of Swords, and from that junior or cadet branch also descended Lord Nestor Royce, who served John Arryn as High Steward of the Vale and Keeper of the Gates of the Moon, the Arryn Winter residence at the foot of the Giant's Lance. His cousin, Bronze Yon, is a character who looms particularly large in the main story, in spite of existing largely off-page. It's obvious that Ned knew him from his time at the Eyrie as John Arryn's ward, and he's one of a number of people specifically noted to have been at the tourney of Harrenhal. Not only that, but he felt a Rhaegar in the jousting, which sounds almost remarkable considering Sansa's later description of him. The Lord of Runestone stood as tall as the Hound. Though his hair was gray and his face lined, Lord Yon still looked as though he could break most younger men like twigs in those huge gnarled hands. 
So, a formidable man, though that didn't stop Jorah Mormont from also defeating him at attorney, this time at Lannisport, when Jorah tilted for Lyness Hightower's affection. Later, as a longtime friend and ally of Ned Stark, Bronzion was among those Veilmen who wanted to ride in support of Rob Stark, and Sansa would note that, quote, the senior branch of House Royce was close to open revolt over her aunt's failure to aid Rob in his war. Even with the War of the Five Kings drawing to a close, Kevin Lannister considers Bronzion a dangerous man, as does Littlefinger. Lord Yone would become the chief of the so-called Lord's Declarant, who sought to keep control of the Vale from Peter Baelish after his marriage to Lysa and her untimely death. When Sansa meets him, disguised as Elaine Stone, she worried that he might recognize her, which he at first appears poised to do. Seeing him brought back memories of his visit to Winterfell when he accompanied his youngest son to the Wall to join the Night's Watch. It says... His seamed and solemn face brought back all of Sansa's memories of his time at Winterfell. She remembered him at table speaking quietly with her mother. She heard his voice booming off the walls when he rode back from a hunt with a buck behind his saddle. She could see him in the yard, a practice sword in hand, hammering her father to the ground and turning to defeat Sir Roderick as well. And we shouldn't forget, Bronzion would also have been a longtime friend of King Robert Baratheon, which is probably what brought him to King's Landing with his two eldest sons to take part in the Hand's tourney. Of Andar, the eldest, not much is said, but Robar is front and center in Sansa's point of view when he tilts against and falls to Sir Loras Tyrell in a tragic foreshadowing of his own death. Later, with Yon and Andar hunting in the King's Wood with King Robert, it would fall to Robar to deliver a message to the King, alerting him of Ned's intention of sending armed men to bring Gregor Clegane to justice in the opening chapter of The War of the Five Kings. Robar Royce is next seen in Bitterbridge with Renly by Catelyn. He's been named one of Renly's Rainbow Guard and is sent to escort her to a local sept near Storm's End to pray the evening before the planned confrontation with Stannis. He's guarding Renly's pavilion when Catelyn later enters to plead with Renly to abandon the fight with Stannis and sees Renly die in Brienne's arms. Robar then helps Cat save Brienne after Cat convinces him that Renly was killed by Stannis and some dark sorcery rather than by the young woman who had adored him. While Robar couldn't have known of the darkly supernatural nature of his younger brother's death, there's a significant irony in the fact that his own tragic death would also occur in a land far from the Vale and also be shadowed by dark magic. For the crime of believing Catelyn's story and seeing that Brienne could not have been the one to kill Renly, and perhaps also for failing to save his king, Robar Royce would be slain by Sir Loras Tyrell. It's said the Knight of the Flowers went mad when he saw his king's body and slew three of Renly's guards in his wrath, among them Emin Kai and Robar Royce. Shortly before his death, Robar had explained his choice of Renly to Catelyn, saying, My lord father owes Lady Lysa fealty, as does his heir. A second son must find glory where he can. A man grows weary of tourneys. For a second son in search of glory, even a talented tourney knight such as Robar, playing second fiddle to an elder brother seems to have been untenable. Restless and in search of something like so many of his fellows whom Catelyn termed the Knights of Summer, he chose a path that ultimately led him to his death far from home. But while the lot of a second son would often be to play second fiddle or backup to his elder brother, if he could accept that role, 
Feudal society is especially unkind to third sons, for unless a family is blessed with fabulous wealth and power, the task of finding lands and wife for such can be financially prohibitive. The old saying about having an heir and a spare seemingly leaves no place for any sons that come after. In fact, there's a common perception that while second sons might take up arms as semi-professional soldiers or tournament knights, as Robar Royce did, the expense related to arming and supporting a knight meant that third sons were commonly given to the clergy. While this wouldn't come without an initial price tag, it would usually mean that the support of that child would become the responsibility of the church, with the follow-on benefits of restricting future dynastic heirs to the sons of elder sons, and of bringing some prestige and possibly a greater chance of salvation by having a family member interceding with God and his temporal servants on the family's behalf. Although this didn't always hold true, it's a reasonable enough formula that we can see playing out both in the real world and in Westeros. Loras Tyrell, himself a third son, tells Jamie Lannister it's not necessary for a third son to wed or breed. And so we see numerous third sons joining celibate orders that stand in for the church in Westeros, like the Citadel, the Night's Watch, and to a lesser extent, the Kingsguard. While there are a few famous Kingsguard that are third sons, Raymond Baratheon from Aenys I, Seven, Ryan Redwine, who served both Jaehaerys and Viserys I, and Sir Loras Tyrell among them, that order has a much higher percentage of second sons, perhaps upholding the old adage about second sons in the military. As an aside, if anything supports that particular trope in A Song of Ice and Fire, the existence of an associate sellsword company called the Second Sons, whose past members include notable second sons Arian Targaryen and Oberyn Martell, should indeed. But looking at other orders, we see third sons also sent to the Citadel. While the practice of maesters leaving their family name behind makes it sort of difficult to assess how widespread this practice was, we know that Vagon Targaryen, the third surviving son of Jaehaerys and Alysanne, was sent to the Citadel when he showed no interest in either marriage or warfare. And Aemon Targaryen, the third son of Daron I's fourth son, Makar, was sent because, as his grandfather Daron put it, too many dragons are as dangerous as too few. In the Night's Watch, we see third sons, Benjen Stark and Waymar himself, and numerous other men from noble houses who were certainly younger sons with little chance of inheriting lands or titles. As for the fate of other third sons, Westeros in particular seems to be a dangerous place for these extra offspring. In history, the third sons of House Targaryen seem to fare particularly badly, with Daron, son of Viserys I, Daron, son of Aegon V, and Joffrey Valerian all dying tragically. Theon Greyjoy and Rickon Stark are both third sons, and we don't expect their lives to end with a happily ever after either. The point being that to be a third son usually meant a life of difficult choices and being overshadowed by elder siblings. Sir Waymar's choice to take the black may have been inspired as much by a lack of options as by his family's fabled history as first men who kept to the old traditions, of which support for the watch was one. Less than six months before the events of the prologue, Waymar arrived at the Wall, following that brief visit at Winterfell, during which Sansa Stark had, quote, fallen wildly in love with him. 
To inspire such feeling in Sansa, Waymar must have cut a dashing figure, seemingly straight out of a song, young, handsome, heroic-looking, and dressed every inch the part of a man of the Night's Watch. This much is commented upon in the prologue. Waymar is eighteen, with dark hair and gray eyes, slender and graceful. In fact, his description is remarkably similar to that of the younger Jon Snow, and we have to wonder if the older boy's recent visit might not have done something to inspire John's desire to join the Night's Watch. Will thinks wryly that Waymar had prepared well for his position at the Wall, at least as far as his wardrobe was concerned. Waymar dressed in black. Black leather boots, black woolen pants, black moleskin gloves, and a fine supple coat of gleaming black ringmail over layers of black wool and boiled leather. His cloak was his crowning glory, sable, thick and black and soft as sin. In addition, Waymar rides a magnificent black destrier, an expensive horse, no doubt gifted to him by his father, though noted to be a poor choice for ranging north of the wall. Waymar also possesses a, quote, splendid sword, brand new castle-forged steel with jewels glittering in its hilt. This sword, as Will surmised, had never been swung in anger before the final day of Waymar's life, and ultimately would prove no match for the supernatural ice blade of his foe, shattering like glass after dueling with the other. But that wasn't quite the end of Waymar's sword. It's noted that Will found the broken remnant when he descended from his tree perch, thinking to bring it back as evidence to support his tale. As Will himself was killed by the whited Waymar moments later, the sword might have passed from the story in that moment, a cast-aside remnant of a forgotten duel. Except that three years later, when the Free Folk passed through the wall into Westeros, the new Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, Jon Snow, requires that they surrender their treasures to the Watch, intending to use anything of value to purchase food in Essos to supply them through the coming winter. In that trove, there's a particular item which just might be of interest. Here's the passage. As they passed, each warrior stripped off his treasures and tossed them into one of the carts that the stewards had placed before the gate. Amber pendants, golden torques, jeweled daggers, silver brooches set with gemstones, bracelets, rings, niello cups and golden goblets, war horns and drinking horns, a green jade comb, a necklace of freshwater pearls, all yielded up and noted down by Bowen Marsh. One man surrendered a shirt of silver scales that surely had been made for some great lord. Another produced a broken sword with three sapphires in the hilt. Though we don't know what the jewels in Waymar's sword had been, we can't rule out the possibility that this heirloom might have once belonged to the former Night's Watchman, especially given that the scene opens with John, having already proved himself Waymar's superior in wisdom, if not bravery, seated on a magnificent stallion. It says, a fiery gray courser with a mane as black and shiny as Maester's ink. He was not the sort of mount that John would have chosen for a ranging, but on this morning, all that mattered was that he look impressive, and for that, the stallion was a perfect choice. So this in itself seems like a perfect callback to Waymar ranging on his black stallion in the very beginning of the series. John understands the proper time and place for looking impressive, someone like Waymar, that time was apparently all the time. 
Not that we can blame the young man for holding on to the finery that he brought with him from his former life, especially when we recall John's own disillusion with the reality of the Night's Watch versus his expectations. Not only was the wall far grimmer and its guardians far less noble and heroic in appearance at any rate than the songs and legends may have suggested, but Waymar, like John, was the subject of ridicule from his fellows on account of his privileged upbringing. Will recalls that Garrod had mocked Waymar's fine sable cloak and called him our mighty warrior over wine in the barracks, thinking that, quote, it is hard to take orders from a man you laughed at in your cups. Unlike Jon Snow, though, Waymar had been knighted, and it was this that led him to insist that he be given his own command. Jorah Mormont would tell Tyrion Lannister, I sent Benjen Stark to search after Yon Royce's son, lost on his first ranging. The Royce boy was green as summer grass, yet he insisted on the honor of his own command, saying it was his due as a knight. I did not wish to offend his lord father, so I yielded. I sent him out with two men I deemed as good as any in the watch. More fool I. After Benjen Stark failed to return, and two of his companions turned up undead, the search would continue with Mormont's great ranging, nearly two and a half years after Waymar's party's disappearance. In the Astorm of Swords prologue, from Chet's point of view, we get this. Three hundred sworn brothers of the Night's Watch had ridden north, two hundred from Castle Black, and another hundred from the Shadow Tower. It was the biggest ranging in living memory, near a third of the Watch's strength. They meant to find Ben Stark, Sir Waymar Royce, and the other rangers who had gone missing, and discover why the wildlings were leaving their villages. When Mormont's force stopped at Craster's Keep, its master would tell Lord Jor about Waymar's group. I, those three I recall, the lordling no older than one of these pups, too proud to sleep under my roof, him in his sable cloak and black steel. My wives gave him big cow eyes all the same. He turned to squint on the nearest of the woman. Garrett says they were chasing raiders. I told him, with a commander that green, best not catch him. Garrett wasn't half bad for a crow. Had less ears than me, that one. The bite took him, same as mine, Craster laughed. Now I hear he got no head, neither. The bite do that, too? Craster would then go on to deny any knowledge of where the party went after leaving his keep, though they couldn't have gone more than two or three days' journey north before meeting their end. Benjen Stark, he claimed, had never passed by on his final mission. But in spite of Craster's scorn and having a somewhat imperious nature, something we see often amongst the high-born upper-class Westeros, Waymar was undeniably brave. And while he was also arrogant, he was certainly not stupid. Foolhardy, perhaps, and unfamiliar with his environment, lacking in respect for the experience of the men under his command, and entirely too sure of himself but he did prove himself to be determined to find the quarry he had been sent to find, and he made some keen observations about the prevailing weather conditions that would seem to rule out the death by cold that Will and Garrett were attributing to the dead men seen on Will's scouting. And it was this observation that would lead Sir Waymar to make one of the most careful-what-you-wish-for type of statements in the narrative when he declared, I would see these dead men for myself. We never do see Waymar finding the dead wildlings, but we can imagine that as fellow undead slaves of the others, they might have eventually come into contact. What we do see is one of the finest examples of bravery in the face of unimaginable fear in the text. 
considering that this theme will be raised explicitly in the very next chapter, Bran's first point of view and the first in the main narrative, we have to say that Waymar's duel with the other was very specifically framed to be an embodiment of Ned's statement that the only time a man can be brave is when he is afraid. And speaking of that Bran chapter, which is tied so closely to this one in placement and theme, in our next segment, we'll be considering the life and deaths of Will and Garrod, which will bring us right to that holdfast outside Winterfell, where Garrod would meet his end at the sword of Lord Eddard Stark. But first, here's a reading of Waymar's epic duel with the other. Dance with us. The other slid forward on silent feet. In its hand was a longsword like none that Will had ever seen. No human metal had gone into the forging of that blade. It was alive with moonlight, translucent, a shard of crystal so thin that it seemed almost to vanish when seen edge on. There was a faint blue shimmer to the thing, a ghostlight that played around its edges, and somehow Will knew it was sharper than any razor. Sir Waymar met him bravely. Dance with me, then. He lifted his sword high over his head, defiant. His hands trembled from the weight of it, or perhaps from the cold. Yet, in that moment, Will thought, he was a boy no longer, but a man of the Night's Watch. The young ranger Will serves primarily as a vehicle for introducing the stories of Waymar and Garrett. He's between them, physically and emotionally. His powers of observation bring the two to life and tell us what we need to know about each in the moment. As we saw with Waymar, there's more to their stories than this brief chapter relates. Garrett's background is less illustrious than Waymar Royce's. Forty years on the wall, he's a veteran in whom Lord Commander Mormont puts a large amount of trust. Even the despicable wildling Craster seems to have respect for him, saying, Garrett wasn't half bad for a crow. So we do get to know a little more about his story, and like his fellows, we'll see his death play out on page. We actually learn a little more about Will, though it's mostly what can be gleaned from his own thoughts. Before coming to the Wall, Will had been a hunter, skilled at moving silently through woods in search of prey. After being caught poaching in Lord Malister's woods, he was sent to the Watch, where his commanders soon learned to take advantage of his talents in woodcraft. When the story opens, Will had been on the wall four years, long enough to participate in many rangings. While he was terrified of the haunted forest on his first mission, he soon learned his way there and to keep his fear in check. We're told this in Will's point of view to suggest that, as a young man on his first ranging, perhaps Waymar isn't as cool as he seems. Will recalls his own fear, and this allows him, and us, to humanize Waymar, in spite of his arrogance and apparent ineptitude. Like Waymar, Will is a man of the watch to the end. In spite of hailing from the Riverlands, he's apparently learned the value of praying to the, quote, nameless gods of the wood, and his bravery and conscientiousness allowed him to avoid being drawn into the growing conflict between his fellows, while also relating the final hours of their mission with a keen eye for detail to the reader. After the disappearance of his party, Lord Commander Jor Mormont would tell Tyrion Lannister that he had deemed Will and Garrod as good as any men in the Watch. Will's final thoughts were all of bringing word and proof of what he had witnessed back to the Watch. 
His final observation of the revenant Weimar Royce answered the question of what had happened to the dead wildlings he'd observed earlier, and his final act was to close his eyes and pray. Garrod had been left to guard the horses, and we don't know whether he saw Will or Weimar reanimated in death, or encountered the others, or if the atmosphere of horror that he'd been remarking upon simply became too much for him to bear. We don't even know if he abandoned the horses. We do know that he fled, abandoning a four-decades-long commitment to the watch, and sought to put a 700-foot-tall wall of ice and as many miles as he could between himself and whatever it was he experienced off-page. Brand 1, the first chapter in the main narrative, opens with the party of men riding from Winterfell to a holdfast in the hills to see a man beheaded. Lord Eddard Stark has been called to bring justice to a prisoner who is described as, quote, old and scrawny, not much taller than Rob. He had lost both ears and a finger to frostbite, and he dressed all in black, the same as a brother of the Night's Watch, except that his furs were ragged and greasy. The reader can guess that this is Garrod, that loose end from the prologue, but Garrett's final days leave us with more questions than answers. Where did he cross the wall? What exactly did he see? And more than anything, what did he tell Lord Eddard Stark when his moment of judgment came? In the Brand chapter, it says, There were questions asked and answers given there in the chill of morning, but afterward Bran could not recall much of what had been said. Now, surely if the man had spoken remotely coherently about white walkers and undead servants, Bran, the boy who loved old Nan's stories, would have sat up and taken note. While describing the anticipation of seeing the execution, it says that Rob, Bran's older brother, had claimed the man was a wildling. This caused no small amount of excitement with the youngster who loved stories. Here's a quote. He remembered the hearth tales old Nan told them. The wildlings were cruel men, she said, slavers and slayers and thieves. They consorted with giants and ghouls, stole girl children in the dead of night, and drank blood from polished horns. And their women lay with the others in the long night to sire terrible half-human children. So it's established early that Bran has a high level of interest in tales from beyond the wall, and yet he couldn't recall much of what passed between the man and his father. Ned would later tell Catelyn, The poor man was half mad. Something had put a fear in him so deep that my words could not reach him. So we can perhaps assume that Garrod didn't manage to make much of a coherent statement, that his replies to Ned's questions came as more incoherent ramblings. All we know is that whatever report Ned was able to send back to Jor Mormont, along with the man's head, caused the old bear a great deal of anxiety, though the out-of-character behavior of a valued member of the Watch and the loss of two others was probably more than enough to cause anxiety. Assuming Garrett's ramblings, whatever they were, were based on the unbelievable facts of his experiences in the haunted forest, there's no small amount of irony in the fact that our introduction to Ned Stark comes through the act of executing a man for telling the truth. Months later, Ned would meet his end in King's Landing, beheaded by the same sword he used to kill Garrod, and for offenses related to speaking the truth. Not long before, it was seeking Waymar Royce and his less well-connected companion, Will, that was First Ranger Benjen Stark's final mission. 
Sometime later, two of the men in his command, Othar and Jafer Flowers, would be found dead near the wall. When they were brought back to Castle Black, both rise as whites, with Jafer killing Sir Jeremy Riker and Othar attempting to kill Jor Mormont. Much like the statement about Waymar Royce's single blue eye seeing Will, with the emphasis on recognition, these actions seem to indicate some memory on the part of the dead, which, if Garrod had encountered either Will or Waymar as undead and observed a similar recognition, we can imagine causing the utmost terror. Upon observing Garrod's execution, Ned Stark's two elder sons, Rob and John, would have a disagreement over the prisoner's state of mind. The deserter died bravely. He had courage, at the least, was Rob's opinion. But John, the more quiet and introspective of the pair, saw something else. It was not courage. This one was dead of fear. You could see it in his eyes, Stark. This exchange would cause Bran, the point-of-view character, to ask his father about the nature of fear and bravery. Ned's answer frames one of the key themes of the novels in words a young child can understand. Death, fear, and courage will stalk hand-in-hand in the pages to come. The experiences of three men of the Night's Watch, seemingly disconnected from the politics and intrigue of the main narrative, function as our introduction to this concept. Up next, we'll conclude our analysis with a look at death and fear in A Song of Ice and Fire. Rob says the man died bravely, but John says he was afraid. What do you think? his father asked. Bran thought about it. Can a man still be brave if he's afraid? That is the only time a man can be brave, his father told him. The Will Prologue introduces us to two themes that will become centerpieces of the narrative, death and fear. The bulk of the chapter deals with conflict over an escalating sense of fear, and we hear about dead wildlings, see the cold butchery of Waymar's death, and then Will's death at the hands of his now undead brother. Garrod's own death follows very quickly in Bran 1, which just as quickly takes up the themes of death and fear, and somewhere along the line we get the distinct impression that these others are deathless. Throughout the series, we'll see more deaths that are butchery and betrayal, more undead beings and executions, and we'll see firsthand just how difficult it is to kill the dead men who come walking in the night. Waymar's question to Garrod, do the dead frighten you, should be answered with a very emphatic yes. Death and the dead are coming for everyone in Westeros. And yet, with fear comes courage and great deeds of bravery. We keep reading because our curiosity is piqued and we want to see more. The struggle with fear and the triumph of courage are, after all, at the center of some of the greatest conflicts within the human heart. While future chapters will have quite different moods and new themes, settings, and characters will be introduced, we should not forget where we started. Every single point-of-view character will grapple with fear and death in one way or another. 
While outcomes will vary, and as in real life, each individual will have differing strategies for dealing with these important themes, fear and death are omnipresent. Their introduction in this first chapter tells us something about where we're going. As well, the introduction of the others, possibly the most terrifying enemy seen in the series to date in this first chapter, underscores their future relevance. Though the narrative moves away from this place and time very quickly, on the occasions that it dips back towards it, we're reminded not to forget about it. Death and fear may have become a way of life in Westeros, but we're constantly aware that there's something much worse lurking outside the narrative, just out of sight, white shadows in the darkness that will emerge when we least expect it. This is the essence of horror, and in a few short pages, George establishes his epic fantasy as one with a unique place in the genre, drawing upon these elements that might be more at home in a thriller or classic horror story. We noted that prologues exist in epic fantasy to make promises to the reader, to draw them in or invest them in the outcome. With this prologue, George promises suspense, a supernatural foe in a world that's both like and unlike our own. Allusions to the extreme cold, the night's watch and their mission, an apparent feudal structure, and trees called sentinel pines that just might resemble trees in our world all function to begin building that world for us. The author uses other devices to draw us in as well. Imagery of a dark forest and the sound of howling wolves set the mood, aided by personification of the natural world with phrases like, listen to the darkness, and a cold wind was blowing out of the north, and it made the trees rustle like living things. Characterization also works to set the mood, with the characters' voices and conflicts building our sense of dread, while those predominant themes of fear and death emphasize the overall mood of this chapter and set the stage for what's to come. And there's at least one giant hook the author sets for us that makes this a particularly effective prologue. The action of the prologue, in one sense, functions as a standalone short story, There's a conflict which is resolved, at least in part, by the deaths of two of the characters. There's a mystery. What happened to the dead wildlings observed by Will, which we can infer is solved by the rising of Waymar Royce? But there are also a couple of loose ends. One of these is Garrod, whose ultimate fate is revealed in the very next chapter and provides the link of the prologue story to the main narrative. And the other is... the others... These supernatural beings are introduced, shown to be real, and then not seen again on page for two entire books. In fact, starting in Bran 1, the author takes great pains to show that nearly everyone in this world considers the others to be creatures out of legend, mere fairy tales to be whispered about around the fire, the kind of stories that scare children and are scorned by adults. But we readers along with a slowly growing minority of characters, know better. This is one of the main things that keeps us reading, and as we move towards a denouement, many of the questions that loom largest in our minds concern not the politics of the Seven Kingdoms, but these others that slid so briefly into our view in this very first chapter. The chapter opens with an appeal to start back, but there is no going back in A Song of Ice and Fire, The halcyon days of safety and childhood are behind us the moment the story begins, if they ever existed at all. This is one of the most difficult lessons many of our point-of-view characters will learn throughout the narrative. 
The final lines of the chapter point us to where the story is going. Will's point of view blinks out as the icy hand of death closes around his throat. There will be no going back. Instead, we must move forward along with the narrative. Our navigation and the character's navigation through the darkness of fear, hatred, and death will make the bright spots of courage, love, and life that much brighter. Thanks so much for joining me today, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode all about the Will Prologue as much as we enjoyed studying it. We'll be back soon with another regular episode of Radio Westeros, but now it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R.R. Martin for including a horror story in his narrative, and to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Heartfelt thanks to Tim, B-Word, Amber, Fatima, The Girl With No Name, Catherine, Jill, Lady Silverwing, Dean, Aileen, Casey, Eliana Targaryen, Sasha, Alexis, Chris K, Marge of the Mage, John H, Lady of the Frostfangs, Sir Bobby the Ninth, thrower of the Valyrian steel chair, Lady Steelwind, Sharon of Littlefield, JM, the Madmaster of Castle Black, Oxheart, Boss, Arrow Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Christian, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Jancy Lee, Lady of the Waves and Keeper of the Sacred Bear Den, Blythe Spirit, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to Alex, Christian, Charitable Rereadings, Richard, Camille, Scott, Sylvia, Nessie, The Questing Beast, Virginie, Daniel Redbeard, Stephen Stark, Rachel, Eric, Ashmarie, Harry Krishna, Sir Galahoo of what? Matthew, The Red Woman, Brian, Lizzie, PJ, Sin Bobby Joe, Lenny, Clay, Monaro Geek TV, Patrick, Scott, Goldie Juke, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Joseph, Kevin, Daniel, Dennis, Emma, Judson, Emily of the Erie, Jeff, Terry, Melissa, Maria, Ryan, Stephen, Matthew, Dutch, Defender of the Berm, and Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Sworn Alesmith, Two House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancer's Guild, and Keeper of the Buzz. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel like we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal, and comment on our content there. Or find us on iTunes, YouTube, Spotify, and of course you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, email, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.